This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries, official sponsor of Faction 46 and Nice Motorsports Truck Series teams. Forney offers versatile welding and plasma cutting machines, along with a full line of metalworking accessories for beginners, do-it-yourselfers, and professionals. Forney has everything you need for your next metalworking project. Shop for these top-of-the-line products at ForneyIND.com, that's F-O-R-N-E-Y-I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's so, the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good. And then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappeared. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken and I was a chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. <laughs> So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Bought Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. 
Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. If you don't feel like you're the best out there, you're going to get beat. No doubt about it. I don't know if I was the greatest race driver in racing, but I know I could outrun anybody come on that racetrack. At the end of that race, I could literally see the bones on my right hand. It had just gone through the skin, through the meat, down to the bones. I want to be a Penske driver, so don't spin out on me now. Today, NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past. That's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And I'm Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, where, Steve, we have made it to episode 42. Three. All right. And you know what that means, man. Yes, sir. You have to call me king for the rest of the show. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be hard, but I'll do it. Steve, this week we're going to do the second segment of my interview with Dave Marcus. And in this segment, Dave talks about the commitment that he had to doing things his way. And certainly some of the hardships that he faced as an independent driver. We're also going to discuss his wingtips, his appetite. And Steve, we're going to talk about his loyalty. We're going to talk about his loyalty in general, but also in particular, his loyalty to Goodyear. Yes, you never saw Dave without that Goodyear hat on. Well, when I got to his house for the interview there in Arden, he was out on a tractor. (laughs) (laughs) Hard working as always. And yes, he did have on a Goodyear cap. I don't know that I would have recognized him without the Goodyear cap. Well, it was my pleasure to join Dave at Stocks for Tots in Mooresville this past December. And guess what? (laughs) He had a Goodyear hat on and kept it on for the entire affair. And in the second segment, we're going to share some of our memories of this year's NASCAR Hall of Fame honorees. And of course, those folks were Tony Stewart, Joe Gibbs, Bobby Labonte, Buddy Baker, and Waddell Wilson. Well, to me, that is a fine class indeed. Well, yeah, it was a fine class. And there's been a lot of comments about who maybe should have got in. Well, you're going to hear that after every (laughs) one of these things. And that's only natural. People do have their opinion when it comes to the Hall of Fame. But I think overall, there really shouldn't be too much of a complaint about this class. All were worthy. Absolutely. And Steve, this week was a good week on Patreon. We have new support from James Knupp, Avery Brew, Larry Bailey, Jeremy Reckelhoff, and John Sauer, and increased support from Michael Corvin. So thank you guys so much for your help. I have five old Grand National scenes from, I believe, 88, 89, somewhere in there. Five left. So $5 a month, you get one of the issues. $10 a month, you get two. And we also have some of the newer papers. Got a big stack of papers from about 2006, 7, 8, somewhere in there. So you have a choice. Either the older Grand National scenes or the NASCAR scenes, your choice while supplies last. So check it out on patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast, or if you would rather not do a monthly commitment, paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. Now you wound up doing a lot of testing. I made a ton of testing for that. I tested the car and helped set it up that he won Daytona with. Did you really? And if you'll listen to the original interview, he thanks me. Now, how did that wind up taking place? Was that just basically based off your relationship at Osterland or? Oh, no. How did that happen? I don't think that had nothing to do with it. You know, Neil done a lot of testing for Richard and Dale. And when we lost Neil, 
They needed someone to test, and I guess Dale wanted me to test, and I did, and he liked my way of testing or whatever I did. I guess somehow we had some characteristics the same of overdriving a car into a corner, <laughs> I guess. But but trying to work on and figure out how to make it cut once we did that and, and get around the corner, and uh, my testing just suited Dale's driving style real good. With the exception in 1984 when you were with Raymock, you drove the rest of your career for your own team. Were you just basically more comfortable being your own boss? Or well, here's here's the deal. I I was I was so upset um, after that deal. Um, I was upset with after the K and K deal, and then uh, then it happened to me again with Osterlund. And I told Helen, I said, I'm going to go back on my own because. Here we are, it's in the middle of the winter, racing's over, and we ain't got no money, and I ain't got a ride, and season starts in a couple months. And and I said, I'm going to go back on my own. At least I, I know I don't got the money, and I, I know I can't be com- as competitive, but I'll at least know I got a ride, and I'll make ends meet. So that's what I did. You mentioned J.D. Stacy earlier, Jim Stacy, and you had him as a sponsor in late 1981 and all of 1982. And again, like Harry Hyde, you hear so many stories about J.D. Stacy. What was your relationship like with him? My relationship was good. I had no problem. And the deal was they gave me five, I believe it was $5,000 per race. And per race. No, normally I was paid per race. And at Pocono, Pennsylvania... Um, Tim Richmond was driving his main car. Uh, Bobby Allison and Tim were racing hard um, together, and Bobby ran out of gas on the back straightaway. He coasted it and stopped. The rain came. They stopped the race. Bobby didn't lose the lap. I pushed Bobby back to the pits. Yeah. Now, he'd have done it for me, and we all would have done it for each other. That's just how things were in those days even though we raced hard together and whatever, we all helped each other. But anyhow, Jim Stacy fired me, took my sponsorship away for pushing Bobby Allison back to the pits because Bobby ended up winning that race, beating Tim Richmond. Had I not pushed Bobby back right. to the pits, he would have lost the lap sitting back there. So, And I, that was 1982? Well, whatever year it was, I don't know. You'd have to check the records, but Bobby <laughs> yeah. won the race. Okay, all right. But I remember the stories. I mean, I, I guess I don't know. I've always been honest with people. I, right. I, I just that's my reputation, and uh, so. Um, but I got like I told Junie Don and Olivia. I don't think never got all his money, and I think um, Jack Beebe, who Ron Bouchard drove for, I don't think they never got all their money. I always would tell them guys it was a joke between the three of us. Yeah. I got, at least I got paid. I got fired, but I got paid. <laughs> <laughs> you take the good with the bad, I guess. But then I ended up being the only guy, I think, that won a race for Stacy, right? I think Tim Richmond was sponsored by J.D. when he won his first couple races in 82. Okay, I can't remember. Both of them were at Riverside. But I think I won the first race for him. And that it was, was my spring race in Richmond. That was my next question. You won what would turn out to be your final race yep. at Richmond in 1982, early in the season. What do you remember about that day? Uh, we were running decent, although um, Joel Rutman in Stacy's car was really, really running good. 
I don't even remember how many laps we were into the race. Obviously, we were a long ways into the race because it had to be over half over. Yeah, yeah, you were past halfway, yeah. And um, Rutman passed me going into the third turn, which we hadn't crossed start-finish line yet. Would have put me down a lap. Okay. He spins out coming off of turn four. Did not cross start-finish line, stopped short of it. I went right back by him, puts me on the lead Back I never the lost the lead yeah, lap, yeah. off the lead lap, but I had to stay on the racetrack to catch up to the pace car because if I would have dove in the pits, everybody would have lapped me and put me down a lap. Yeah, yeah. So they all dove in the pits. I stayed on the track to catch the pace car so I could come in the next lap. And in the process, Dale Inman seen what happened they only put two tires on richard and they tried to beat the pace car off a of pit road and didn't make it so i'm leading yeah. the race and it keeps on raining and raining and raining yeah. and i don't come in the pits and it rains the race out and you're in victory so, lane so i won the race it, it's just one of those deals yeah i mean it's like you can say well how good were you running when you got passed by the leader and did would have put you down a lap but I never got a lap down because he never crossed the start-finish line. He never finished that lap. Yeah. I still beat him across the start-finish yeah. line. How were you able to think that quickly in the car, to know what you had to do in order to be in the right position? Believe me, Rick, I, I don't know for sure. I mean, I can't say I, I did or I planned it, but in those days, all of us littler guys, anyhow, we could tell you – we could tell you what 7th paid, what 8th played. If we were running 11th, if we could get to 10th, we knew the difference in the money. It was $300 yeah. about or somewhere. Yeah. I yeah. mean, and a, a lot of us did because that's was our income. That's all, yeah. you know, we knew. And, and I don't know. I mean, it just, the way it happened, I think it happened so damn quick. I mean, I knew that I didn't lose a lap because he was spun out before the flag stand. So I knew I didn't lose a lap. But I, and, and everybody else, as soon as that caution came out, we went around, they all dove in the pits. I was ahead of them. Well, when that happened, I went across the start-finish line again, and they were coming on the pit road. So, again, for sure, I haven't lost a lap. And so then I get behind the pace car, and it started sprinkling, and I'm like, holy man, I'm just staying out here. I mean, it just happened. Dave, as your career progressed... What was a good race like for Dave Marcus? What was a good day? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you, um, well, just finishing all in one piece was good, and certainly in the top ten or, you know, the eighth or somewhere was, was good. But the, the deal is, Rick, I, I didn't have a big crew, and and I, I half the time I was wore out by race day from working on that race car night and day. I mean, I mm. just yeah, I wasn't at my best. You know, because I was just, I was tired working all the time. And so, uh, I mean, I got, I worked with my crew. I got up in the morning at 4.30 and 5 o'clock when they did and went to the racetracks with them, ate breakfast with them, and we was just done everything. I just worked, worked, worked on that race car. And at the racetrack, I worked on it all day long also, changing springs and sway bars, whatever needed to be done. You weren't kicked back in the transporter drinking the Coke. Absolutely not. I worked on that race car, and I I don't know. You ask some of Buddy Parrott and them, them guys, Richard Petty, they can tell you how hard I worked. They were in the pits. They know. 
Yeah. Dave, if anybody knows anything at all about Dave Marcus, they probably know a few things that stand out. <clears throat> so let me ask you about them. Your wingtip shoes. <laughs> Where did that come from? Were you just more comfortable? Well, ac- well, it actually came from a conversation. Uh, in those days, we all had problems burning our heels on the short tracks because you didn't get a lot of air under those cars, and those headers were exhaust pipes were right up against the floor pans and probably the insulations, and those days weren't as good as today. So, you know, Bobby Allison had trouble, Richard had trouble, I had trouble, a lot of us had trouble. We are at North Wilkesboro, Richard, I, and I believe Kale, talking race day morning. Uh, Cars are probably already on the line, lined up for the race. And here comes Bobby Allison walking up pit road limping. And I made some comment or somebody, boy, poor Bobby can hardly walk, you know, he's limping, he's got that damn burn on his heel. And I said, well, I got one on mine too, but it ain't that bad. Pearson said, haven't you got any shoes with leather soles? And I said, yeah, I got my wingtips. They're, they're dress shoes. He said, well, where are they? I said, they're out in the suitcase in the trunk of the car in the infield. He said, well, this is all I wear. He said he had a pair of loafer, penny loafers on, they call them in them days, I guess. Wow, yeah. And, and he said, I don't get my heels burnt, but David didn't run all the short tracks we all ran <laughs> either, you know. Yeah. But still, he said, I didn't get my heels burnt. And um, so I sent Helen out to the infield that day to get my shoes out of that suitcase, and I wore them. And the burn that I already had didn't get any worse, and they worked really, really good. So I wore them two or three more times, and then the race fans started picking up on it, asking questions about it, and I just kept wearing them, and it just became a trademark, I guess. Wow. That's how it happened. Pearson's the one that actually brought it up. Another thing that people tend to know you for is your appetite. I mean, I've seen you at different places and different events, and you've got a plate of food just piled up. I can look at food and gain weight, and here you are, skinny as a rail. How are you able to do that? I guess working hard. <laughs> I mean, I, I work hard. I still do. Yeah. I, I mean, I still don't sit around. I keep myself in good shape, I, and I watch my weight, but I yeah. just— uh, I've always been a good eater. I was born and raised on a farm in Wisconsin, and I ate good there and worked hard. And uh, it's I def, I've done that all my life. I still eat a lot. <laughs> the other thing that I did want to mention is your loyalty. When it seemed like maybe Hoosier tires were the way to go during the tire wars and all that, you a lot of times were the only person who wanted to stay with Goodyear. And right now, you're wearing a Goodyear cap. What is it about Dave Marcus that made you want to stay with Goodyear? Well, their loyalty to the sport. Right. And and when I first come down here, I ran some Firestones for a while. And then we were at Atlanta, and um, I think Kale and David and Pearson and uh, se- several of the top guys had deals with Firestone. You know, I didn't know anything about this kind of stuff. I mean, I come from Wisconsin, and, you know, we had tires and we bought, and, you know, a lot of things were different. I didn't know a contract from a tire company. I'm like, holy balls, you guys are getting paid to run the tires? You <laughs> yeah. Know? But, yeah, they said we got contracts. So, anyhow, the Firestone Tire was having a problem at um, Atlanta, and there were guys – 
during uh, Saturday's practice that put Goodyear's on and ran them. I know Cale did and Pearson did and several of them did. But the problem was there wasn't enough time left in the day because I think the Goodyear's needed to be scuffed too. They were better if they were scuffed. Yeah. So somebody, I don't know who, Goodyear must have went and talked with NASCAR and they all got together and they knew they had a problem. So the deal was can we hire some small teams to scuff these tires for these other guys to use tomorrow in the race? Because our everybody's concern, NASCAR's, Goodyear's, Firestone's, everybody's, was about the race fan putting on a good race. Right. And, and um, NASCAR allowed that to happen. So I know Goodyear come to me and said, could you stay and scuff tires tonight till it gets dark and and i don't know who else done it maybe cecil gordon maybe maybe bill seifert i don't remember which guys all done it but all them teams had goodyear's mounted up on other sets of wheels because they were expecting to have problems in the race on sunday so i did that and i can't remember i don't think i ran to goodyear's in the race that day i really don't remember you'd have to find a picture of the car from that year that that happened but but anyhow uh then in 1970, again, I didn't have no money, and, and there was a little bit of a tire war. Firestone come up with a great big point fund, and if you ran the Firestone tires, I think they paid the point fund in like three segments. Yeah. And so Goodyear didn't have many people on the Goodyears. They were just getting involved, I think, in the sport then, or back into it. I don't quite know for right. sure. Yeah. But anyhow, they came to several little teams and said that, and I, they think they set a number, and I don't remember the number, but I think, I think we were, got we if we ran their tires, and, and we had to put a Goodyear service stores ad on the race car, and they gave us a number, and I can't remember the number. It was like I think thirty six thousand dollars worth of tires for the season, and uh, to me that was you know that was great. Now now Firestone had some huge point money. Cecil Gordon, I know, was one of the guys that stayed on the Firestones and won a quite a bit of money that year with the point fund. However, I felt if I was running good and had a really good year, surely they would keep helping me with tires all year. You know, that 36000 wouldn't play a part, but they put a number on it so you didn't abuse it at the beginning of the year. So I, I took that deal, and uh, I ran the good years, and uh, I can't remember in 70 what kind of year I even had anymore, but I didn't have to worry about buying tires. I didn't have no money. Hmm. And, and um, you know, I just, they helped me when I needed help. So I, I stayed on good years, and then when them tire wars started and when Hoosier came in there, you know, that was a bad, bad deal. You, you got a small tire company that only makes race tires, does not sell tires to the public trying to compete against a giant like Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company, and they're forcing Goodyear to make a gumball tire to be competitive, and so then you got a blown-out tire, shredded all the pieces on television. Not good when you're selling to the public. So Hoosier could put the pressure on Goodyear, and I talked to Leo Mail about that, and they realized that. And I, I told him one time at the, the Charlotte deal was one of them. I said, you know, you guys are letting them Hoosier people lead you down the wrong road because, you, you know, you're getting bad publicity. I was actually in the office at Charlotte that day talking to Leo Mayo 
Dale Earnhardt and Kenny Schrader came in there and said, Leo, you got to bring us some tires here. We are having a problem. These tires are blowing out. These Hoosiers are blowing out left and right. We can't run 40 laps. And he said, that's what Dave is in here talking to me about. The NASCAR rule, Leo said, is if we bring in some different tires than the ones we brought here for this race, we have to have enough of them to supply the entire field on hand here at the yeah. racetrack. So I said, well, bring the Atlanta tire. He said, we do not have enough Atlanta tires. Otherwise, we would do that. He said, the only tire I have enough of is the Daytona tire. And how are you going to get qualified on them? I said, well, I am not running the Hoosiers. So if you don't mind doing that, bring the Daytona tires for me. They were in the damn warehouse just down the street there in Charlotte. Leo said, we will do it. Dale said, we'll run them. Schrader said, we'll run them. By race day, every car in the field, every car qualified and was on Hoosier tires except me. I stayed on the Goodyears. I qualified, I think, 36th Yeah. in the race. I was going to end up winning that World 600, not because I outran everybody, but because they couldn't go but 40 laps. Yeah. And they were blowing yeah. out tires. Yeah. So. They would put me down a lap, but when they pitted, I got the lap back and would just about put them down another lap. So, I mean, it was like I almost were going to be given the race because yeah. I was on that hard Daytona tire. I didn't have to pit. I could run a full tank of fuel. But wow. what happened, I'm passing Sterling Marlin going into the third turn, and Sterling blows a damn Hoosier tire and puts me in the wall. Wrecked my race car. The record that Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company has in NASCAR, the number of starts, the number of years consecutive is because of me. That also happened at Pocono. I can't remember the whole Pocono story, but they withdrew the Goodyear Tires that day. We put our car through inspection with Hoosier Tires on it, if I remember right, and my guys went down on pit road and put Goodyear tires on that car on pit road, and I started that race on Goodyear tires. And I don't remember how we pulled that deal off or how that all came about, but that was another one, and the other one was Daytona. Jeff Bodine doing the testing for Hoosier, talked them people into making a real narrow tire with a high center in it. It was fast. The rule is in NASCAR, if you change tires, you have to start in the rear of the field. What went on at Daytona? Um, everybody ended up on them Hoosiers again because they were fast. But in 125 miler, nobody could drive their cars after so many number of laps. I can't remember. Yeah, they were yeah. all slipping and sliding and yeah. sideways and spinning, and they had a hell of a time. I stayed on the Goodyear's. Everybody, just about, before race day, switched back to the Goodyear tire. I should have been on the pole because I stayed on the original tire. They did not follow their rule. Now, let me ask you this question. How many Goodyear caps do you own? Phil Homer gave me about eight cases, I think. <laughs> Before I retired. <laughs> Are you still working off those eight cases? Yes, I am. But Holy cow. They're starting to get down. <laughs> but 
But Goodyear, Goodyear was loyal to the sport, and they didn't build special tires for special people. And I respect that. I know Hoosier done that. And I know that happened on the short tracks in Wisconsin. They built special tires for Dick Trickle. I also know Firestone built special tires for certain people, and I don't really care to mention the names, but I know that happened. Yeah. Goodyear did not do that ever, to my knowledge. I never heard about it, knew about it, or found out about it. So I respect them for that. At least if you were racing against them, and you walked over somebody's tire, and it said a T16 or a T70 in those days on and on short tracks, you knew that you had the same tire they had. Steve, when Dave talked about testing the car that Dale Earnhardt drove to victory in the 1998 Daytona 500, it was very evident the pride in his voice. Yeah, I'm you sure. know, it kind of makes yeah. me smile even now the pride that he had in, in doing that for his buddy Dale. Steve, why do you think Dale got Neil Bonnet and then Dave Marcus to test his cars? I think there are two reasons. Number one, uh, Neil was a very, very good friend and a trusted friend. So Dale knew that when Neil tested his cars, he was going to get all the right information. And the other thing was, Dave Marcus gained a reputation as an excellent man to have in testing because he did that for years for the International Race of Champions. That was his job. That was part of his income. So Dale knew that Dave was also going to provide the correct information and do it well. Here's one other thing to add about Dave. This is not so much about being a test driver as it is a relief driver. Dave was one of the most often used drivers when it came to needing relief. And for Petty Enterprises, 8 out of 10 times that they needed a relief driver, they went to Dave Marcus. That's fact. I did not know that. That's true. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, let me ask you this. How much is there to be said for the fact that maybe Dale just didn't enjoy testing? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you wasn't thrilled when they had more things to do. And a lot of people were not happy with testing. During that period of time, NASCAR didn't have too many rules regarding testing. And so the team started doing it more and more to where eventually it reached a point that the major teams had a separate team that didn't do anything but test cars. They would go to a track for three days. And you know what that costs? Just room and board and food and, and gas and paying the speedway to use their facilities, which includes emergency people. Emergency person, yeah. yeah. And pay for that. So it got to be a tremendous expense. And I started laughing when these teams would go back to NASCAR and say, hey, this sport's getting too expensive. You got to help us make money. What are you talking about? I know why it's too expensive. Cut this out. And eventually, guess what? NASCAR did to a great degree. And the competitors wound up finding another way to spend their money. Well, sure. (laughs) But the idea behind testing was if one team did it on a consistent basis, all the others that could afford to do it would also do it. And uh, to me, the price just got out of hand. Well, Steve, I think there's also something to be said for the fact that Dave maybe needed the help. You know, he needed that little. Oh, I don't think there's any question about extra that. Extra pay, you know, to make it to question. the next racetrack. Dave d- did need the money. And as I said earlier, he got a lot of help financially from testing the IROC cars, him and Jim Sauter. 
Dude. Well, next week, he's going to talk about that. He's going to talk yeah. about IROC. If it hadn't been for IROC, he might not have made it as long as he did. In That's my point. That's my point. And doing the same thing for RC and Dale also was a financial benefit. But again, I repeat, they would not have hired Dave if they felt like they could not trust him and they knew they could trust him. Well, Steve, I think the same goes for Neil because Neil had been out of the car since he got hurt at Darlington, and this was a way for maybe him to get his feet wet again. Yeah, I think Dale thought of it that way as well. And you have to remember, these guys were very close friends. And what do you do to a close friend? You help them as much as you can. And I think that's part of what Dale was doing. Well, another part of the interview that I wanted to talk about was this. He was so upset over losing his ride with K&K and it being sold to J.D. Stacy, And then with the whole Austrian fiasco, he was determined to go his own way and do his own deal. You know, maybe he wouldn't have been as competitive as what he might have been with a higher finance team, but he was still going to have a job. Well, that and the fact that Dave did not want to mess with let's call it racing politics anymore. Politics and what? NASCAR? <laughs> <laughs> he didn't want to be in a situation where he did not like what management, quote unquote, was doing. Therefore, he took the management role on himself and kept it that way for most of the rest of his career. Well, Dave said that he could tell you what the difference was in pay from seventh place to eighth place. They weren't necessarily racing for the win, but they were racing to do well enough to make enough money to make it on down the road a little bit. You know, finishing in one piece was a good day. Finishing in the top 10 was huge. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, Dave's last victory came in 1982. That was the same year. That was the Rain Shorten Richmond race, by the way. That was the same year that he had his last top 10 finish in points, which was sixth. But what characterized that was the battle that he and Buddy Arrington were having for that top 10 position. They knew where they had to finish in every race to get get the points they needed to stay up there. And it was back and forth and back and forth between the two of them. And the media took notice. And this was good stuff. Here you had a, a news story in that you weren't dealing with the superstars. You were following what two independent drivers were doing. And they were really putting on a show throughout 1982. I remember one time I went up to interview Dave about it. This was at Bristol. Now, I showed up inadvertently and forgetfully with a Buddy Arrington cap on my head. (laughs) (laughs) How did that work out for you? (laughs) Well, let's put it this way. He smiled a little bit, reached up, and took it off. And he said, all right, now we can talk. <laughs> Did he give you a good year cap? <laughs> well, if he had one, they would have, but it was on his head. <laughs> anyway, they had a very spirited battle, and it turned out that uh, Dave did finish sixth, but he was seventh, and that was the last time either one of them finished in the top ten of points. Dave got to talking about the hard work and the hours that he put in, and you can hear a little bit of it in his voice, But he was pretty emotional when he talked about that because he said by the time that race day came around, he was worn out, already worn out from working on the car. Well, yeah, and he wasn't alone. Virtually every independent that raced at that time was the same way. They didn't have a lot of people to help them out back at the shop. As a matter of fact, the shops they had were very inferior to the ones that the super teams had. You could see that. And by having to do so much themselves, that certainly didn't leave them in the best shape 
when it came to actually driving the race. The top drivers didn't work in anybody's shop. They didn't spend hours working on cars. There was a big difference there. And I think the independent drivers of that era need to be congratulated for all they did achieve. And I'm not talking about just Dave and Buddy. Richard Schill is a fine example of that at that time. Well, I think what you're saying and what we're talking about really illustrates the difference between an independent driver and a start and park car. Because yeah. a start and park car, their sole reason for being at the racetrack is to take the green flag and head to the garage. Right. Dave Marcus and Buddy Arrington and Richard Childress, when he was driving, no, nah, they were going to last oh. as long as they could. And they were going to race each other Damn. as hard yeah. as the leaders up front were going to race. They knew where each of them was on the track. And you got to, you know, it's like Dave said earlier, they were racing for points. Points paid. Points paid the bill. Points meant that you could meet the budget. So they, starting park was unheard of. You're going to start it at trying that as an independent. So they had to get out there and compete among themselves as best they possibly could. Steve, another thing that Dave Marcus is very, very, very well known for. Uh, <laughs> his wingtip shoes, yeah. his appetite, yeah. and also his loyalty to Goodyear. Right. The loyalty to Goodyear, we've already pretty much covered. They, Goodyear did him a great service when he needed it most. So thereafter, he was a loyal Goodyear man. Even in the days of the tire wars, when at some races, Hoosier was clearly superior to Goodyear, you'd never see Dave switch. Not at all. Well, I think it goes back earlier than that because back in the late 60s, I believe that Firestone was offering a point fund money and Dave stayed on Goodyear's because he got some deal money from Goodyear. Right. The money quote there was, they helped me out when I needed it the most. That's right. And therefore, he was loyal to them all through the years. Okay, so what do you got on his appetite? <laughs> <laughs> used to joke with him about it a lot. Remember earlier I said Dave was often used as a relief driver or even a test driver for Petty Enterprises. Well... There was one race where he was in that role. Now, being a part of the team, even if temporarily, meant that you could use the goodie box on the hauler. Now, that's where they kept all the sandwich makings and cookies and stuff like that. And Dave cleaned them out. Just about. <laughs> Dave had six sandwiches laid out in front of him. He was, you know, getting ready to make all these sandwiches. Six. Six. And this crewman came in, hey, Dave, you're making sandwiches. Great. Don't put any mayonnaise on mine. And Dave said, mayonnaise on yours? Hell, man, these are all mine. <laughs> and they were. Oh, my gosh. There's wow. another one. <laughs> I remember, too, the story they tell about Dave. I think this may be more of a legend than a real story, but it circulated for years. His team was at Dover one year, and they went to one of those all-you-can-eat smorgasbord restaurants now this was a seafood place so when they got there the first thing they did was order crab legs which was not on the buffet and then they got up and started serving themselves from the buffet and ordering crab legs and serving themselves from the buffet and ordering crab legs and serving themselves from the buffet and ordering crab, crab legs. legs yeah <laughs> this went on so long that the manager finally came up to them and said, gentlemen, I'm sorry, you're going to have to leave. <laughs> and Dave said, well, it's all you can eat. We're not through eating yet. And the manager said, I don't care. I'm going broke. Get out. <laughs> Steve, I want it recorded on this podcast here and now 
that I have never in my life been kicked out of a all you can eat buffet. <laughs> I know that's a shock, but I have never been kicked out of an all you can eat buffet. Man, I'm telling you, I'm totally surprised at that. Our buddy Brian Kelb, follow him on Instagram at Speedway Screens. And also check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. And Steve, with the announcement of the Hall of Fame class this week, he and I talked, and he has a Bobby Labonte Interstate Batteries cap and a Tony Stewart Home Depot lid. And, of course, during that time frame, both of those drivers were driving for Joe Gibbs. So that's three of the five who were selected to the NASCAR Hall of Fame. And in addition, he's got a signed, a signed cap from Tony's time in the IRL. I've been to that site, and it's a quite a, an amazing array of unique memorabilia. I encourage fans to go look. I still haven't worked out a deal for our Van Halen t-shirts. <laughs> or do you want another band? No, I'll take anything you can get, to be okay. honest with you. Okay, all right. Maybe in the Moody Blues. That's how old I am. Oh, okay. Moody Blues. So, Brian, hook Steve up. Moody Blues. <laughs> Again, follow him on Instagram at Speedway Screens, and also check out the inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. I'm Rusty Wallace, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, the NASCAR Hall of Fame elected its new members on Wednesday, May 22nd. And, you know, I was looking at the list of people who vote, and there's a group on there that says NASCAR community leaders. Now, how can we get in on that deal? We're a leading NASCAR podcast. How can we get... Okay, you're the NASCAR Hall of Fame honoree and all that. So, you know, maybe you might get that vote. I say you get that vote next year. Well, I do appreciate that. I would be really thrilled to get that vote. But in the meantime, I'm, you know, NASCAR is doing a good job with the Hall of Fame in terms of voting in quality people who deserve to be in. I don't think there was any question this time that Tony Stewart was going to get in. That was a no-brainer. And I'm going to be honest with you. There was a time in my career when Tony and I didn't exactly, yeah, I I don't know. You are not alone. (laughs) (laughs) My Tony Stewart story is that was back in my heavier days, and I had been assigned a Tony Stewart sidebar after the race. I looked for him all over the garage and finally tracked him down in the Joe Gibbs transporter. They had already taken up the steps on the side there, so I kind of clambered up into the truck, and Tony was there with a couple other reporters. And let's just say Tony wasn't exactly complimentary. I can't imagine that. (laughs) So I got Tony stewarded right there. So, you know, say what you will about his demeanor sometimes after races, before races, (laughs) between races. races. (laughs) There is no denying the fact he is one of the greatest wheel men of all time. Not only in NASCAR, but in open wheels. So I am not absolutely not taking anything away from him. In that regard. No, a lot of his, uh, shall we say, misbehavior come from his frustration as a competitor. Uh, all competitors get frustrated at one point or another, but most of them don't react the way Tony did for quite a while. I mean, you don't knock a tape recorder out of a reporter's hands. You don't push your oh. photographer across the room. 
or a crow. Oh, you brought that up. Oh, okay. they don't push a photographer in. And, and he did get in trouble for it. I can't remember if there's ever been a time when a sponsor fined its driver $50,000 for misbehavior. But as you have said, no one can deny his ability to drive a race car of any type. And again, I say the fact that he made the Hall of Fame is a no-brainer. First ballot. Hall of Famer, yeah. He was a three-time champion in the sport. He did so well at the sport. And I think, personally, some of the controversies that he got into, that didn't do anything but fuel his fire. Because, you know, after each of those incidences, he would almost always win the very next week. Well, not only that, but I think off the track, it helped him clear the air. And he felt much better about that. Let me give you an example. Uh, uh, Winston Cup scene ran a story in which Tony just lamented the fact that he was, he was even in NASCAR. He felt he had no time for himself. The fans are all over him, and he didn't really want to be there. Along those lines, well, we ran the story, and he was upset that the story ran. And in fact, tried to deny those were his words or those are what he said. Well, I was on television at the time and I saw the clip about Tony complaining about scene. Well, of course, I had to stand up. I said, I know for a fact that that story is absolutely true. And as far as living and competing in NASCAR, I give Tony Stewart this advice. You have to grow up faster. <laughs> well, he sought me out at the next race. Did he really? Yeah. And okay. wanted me to have a talk in the hauler. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't know what a talk meant, yeah. but I went. And sure enough, we talked. He did have some complaints, but then I told him, hey, this is how it is. This is what we did. We're not out to get you. This is your words. And so after that meeting, we never had a cross moment for the rest of his career, not one. And later in that particular <laughs> season, Tony admitted he was trying to save his job. That what was in scene was indeed the fact. But after that, I repeat, after he cleared the air at that, and we cleared the air with him, and he accepted what happened, he was fine. We never had another problem with him. Almost polar opposite to Tony Stewart when it came to Joe Gibbs Racing Drivers <laughs> was Bobby Labonte. You know, Bobby Labonte, he was as calm and collected and funny, funny yeah, as they came. So I think it's funny that they both drove for Joe Gibbs Racing at the same time. Right. That was two completely different personalities. And the types of personalities that Joe Gibbs has had as drivers is an entire rainbow. I mean, every <laughs> yeah. type of yeah. competitor you can imagine that's raced for. But consider that Tony was a champion three times with Joe Gibbs. Bobby Labonte was a champion with Joe Gibbs, and he won all 21 of his races with Gibbs. And then, of course, now we have Kyle Busch, who is a champion for Gibbs. And do we really have to discuss his personality? Uh, you know, some people like him, some people don't. I'm convinced he wears the black hat as NASCAR's current villain and loves it. But guess what? Who's the hottest driver right now? Kyle Busch. Absolutely. So, Gibbs has had an entire arsenal of competitors and been so successful with every type of competitor he's used. That alone puts him in the Hall of Fame, in my opinion. Well, my best Bobby Labonte story is probably one that my wife could tell better than I could because it was back in the year 2000, 
And I had called Bobby and needed to talk to him about some kind of story. And he wound up calling our house. Well, I was gone at the time and my wife answered. And, you know, the guy on the other end of the line said, may I speak to Rick? Well, he's not here. He's gone to the store to buy some bacon. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) And so they get into this big, long conversation about breakfast. And he liked this and he didn't like that. And they talked for maybe three or four minutes and had this nice conversation. And my wife wound up saying, well, he's, he's still not here yet. Yet. I expect him home anytime. Can I just go ahead and take a message? Well, yeah, this is Bobby Labonte. <laughs> <laughs> Just having called me. And, you know, she has always been impressed by the fact that he didn't put on airs and he actually had a conversation with her. He didn't act like he was some big shot because he was a race car driver. And when it came to talking people and talk to the press, Bobby Labonte was clearly opposite of his older brother, Terry, at the start of his career. Now, Terry warmed up into it, of course, but Bobby was different from the get-go. In what respect, do you think? Well, he wasn't as reticent, and when he answered a question, he answered a question. Terry Labonte, at the start of his career, could no more have had a conversation about breakfast and bacon with your wife than the man in the moon. (laughs) And then Bobby comes along and perfectly natural for him. Now, today, I think they're both equal in that respect, but not at the start of their careers. Well, I think we've touched on it a little bit, but, you know, Joe Gibbs was able to handle different types of personalities and continues to do so to this day because you've got Kyle, you've got Denny Hamlin, who seems to have a talent for speaking his mind sometimes. Maybe that gets him in a little bit of trouble at times. But I think the reason that he's so successful in dealing with all those personalities is the fact that he had a lot of practice. As a coach. As a coach. Absolutely. Organization and personnel is where I think Joe Gibbs is among the strongest team owners around. And he got that, as you said, from football. Now, if you're a head coach of an NFL team and you're successful at it, what are you doing? Among other things, let's forget football strategy and all that. You're dealing with various degrees of talent and personality, and you're making all the differences therein work. Steve, this is the part of the chat that I've looked forward to the most. You talking about Buddy Baker and Waddell Wilson, because I know that you had a fairly close personal relationship with both of them. Tell me about them. Who are they? Waddell Wilson, real quickly, is a quiet, unassuming guy who just went about doing his job, and he did it very well and had been around for a long time, not only as a crew chief, but as an engine builder. He had the skills in both. He and Buddy enjoyed great success. And even though both of them went from team to team as their careers went on, uh, Waddell started with uh, Holman Moody and he ended up uh, with Rainier and he moved on to uh, Hendrick. We all know about Buddy. I mean, in the early years, he was with Petty Enterprises for a while and he too moved to K&K North Krauskopf for a time. And then from there, Bud Moore and to Harry Rainier as well with Waddell. And he had success. Now, both of these guys were very talented at what they did, but Buddy was far and away the most outgoing. Waddell didn't mind the spotlight, but he sure didn't seek it out. He just went about doing his job. Buddy, on the other hand, was inescapable from the spotlight because of his ability to deal with the media and his personality and his humor. Buddy was just a great, great interview. What's your best Buddy Baker story? Well, or can you narrow it down? (laughs) That's the thing. I'd have to narrow it down. There was the time he got stopped on his way to the South Carolina coast. 
to do some fishing. And this Barney Five <laughs> policeman came up to him and said, Sir, may I see your driver's license? And Buddy said, Can I shoot your pistol? <laughs> 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 oh, my. He gave his driver's license to the cop, and the cop looked at it and read it and said, who the hell is L.C. Wiley Baker Jr.? <laughs> let's not talk about getting stopped by state troopers. Uh, well, let's just say that on the way to interview Ray Everham last week, I got an impromptu meeting with a North Carolina state trooper. But, oh, you did? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Patreon supporters, help me out. <laughs> And Waddell Wilson, when I talked to Deb for the memorial episode that we did on Tom Higgins, didn't Tom Higgins and Waddell Wilson, didn't they get into a fight when they well, first no, met? They, they sort of grew up together, but in different parts up there around uh, uh, Burnsville, North Carolina, is where yeah. Tom is from. And the little towns around there were you know, like Spruce Creek and things of that nature. Tom and Waddell both played basketball for separate schools. Okay. Okay. Yeah. They were playing each other one time when they sort of tussled for a ball, and Waddell just went out and bam, popped Tom right in the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and Tom just was taken aback, and he looked at Waddell, and he said, Waddell, why in the heck did you hit me in the mouth? And Waddell said, damn, any teammate will beat you by 23 points. <laughs> Now, is that something that they talked about in later years? Did they give each other a hard oh, time? They still did it till the very day that they took time away from us. And I, for the longest time, used to go up to Waddell the first time I saw him in the garage area, and I'd tug on his sleeve. He said, what do you want? He said, Tom Higgins said you hit him in the mouth. <laughs> he said, I'm going to again if you don't stop. <laughs> and the thing about Buddy I think that's unique is that he was considered the top super speedway driver of his era. I mean, it didn't make any difference whose car he got in. All he wanted to do is mash the gas and go. Now, well, let's year, just say he wasn't that successful on short tracks. No, he was not. <laughs> However, one year, this is unbelievable true, one year, make it 1979, he was racing with Harry Near, and they had already proven themselves as top dogs on the super speedway. What happened? He went out and won Martinsville. Martinsville. Martinsville, the shortest track on the circuit. That was the biggest story. And I think Buddy was very proud of that. But he didn't necessarily act like it. Because the next time I saw him after that race at Martinsville, I said, Hey, it's short track, buddy. <laughs> and he said, man, don't mess with me. <laughs> and you said, yes, sir, and went on about your business. Had to. Have you seen that big buddy back away? <laughs> well, Steve, as you said in the intro, each of these five were very, very, very deserving. However, everybody's always going to have an opinion yeah. about who should get voted in, who shouldn't get voted in. Me, I'm kind of disappointed for Sam Ard and his wife, Joe, and his daughter, Joanne. He deserves a spot in the NASCAR Hall of Fame. There's no question about that. But at the same time, who do you take out right. of these five? So what do you think of the selection process? Is there anything that you would change about it? Right now, to be very honest with you, Rick, not anything major. But I agree with you on one point. I think you may want some changes in the process. There needs to be an old-timers committee, let's call it that way, yes. or a veterans committee yes. That, yes. that works to select some of the guys from NASCAR's deep past. 
some of the pioneers of the sport, like Ray Vogt, who's not in, or John Holman, who you mentioned earlier, is yeah. not in, and several others, Smokey Eunuch, who a lot of fans want yeah. to see put in and is not in. I think that they have a veterans committee to handle this situation. These guys will get their due reward. Other sports, particularly baseball, have this type of thing set up for their Hall of Fame, and I don't think NASCAR would be harmed by it one bit. Steve, this week, before we close, I do think that we need to remember Nicky Lauda, who died this week at the age of 70. I've never been an F1 guy, have never followed the sport, but Mark Stewart, who is the son of Sir Jackie Stewart, he was the executive producer of a film called The Last Man on the Moon about Gene Cernan, and he was also involved in the documentary film that was made about my book, Go Flight, Mission Control, The Unsung Heroes of Apollo. So I actually got to meet Jackie Stewart at a premiere of Last Man on the Moon. So that was kind of neat. And then also Ron Howard's movie, Rush. I discovered so much about Nicky Lauda, James Hunt, that I had never known. But I do think that we need to remember Nicky. Oh, absolutely. Um, let's face it. NASCAR is part of motorsports. That's the key phrase, motorsports. And we need to at least recognize the greats in any form of motorsports, because that is the overall community. And when a great one like Nicky Lauda passes, it should be duly noted and duly respected for what he did. And Steve, by the time this podcast is released Sunday night, my boys will have graduated high school. <laughs> oh, <God>. And... <laughs> <laughs> been there, done that. Oh, man. I don't know, man. I have been so emotional. I, oh, man. I couldn't even explain why. I'm very, very proud of the young men that Adam and Jesse are becoming. And it's going to be kind of different to see them walking across that football field tomorrow. Well, graduating from high school is not only a significant achievement for the child. It is also one for the parents. And you are to be congratulated. Oh, got me. Got me right there. <laughs> and Steve, in honor of them, I'm going to play this clip of them that was recorded when they were in about the second grade. So, boogity boogity. Dad, stop it. Dad, shush it. I can't concentrate with you saying boogity boogity all the time. Hey, Dad, could you do me a little favor? I'm trying to play a game here. <laughs> 